So just a couple of weeks ago, I was at a denominational pastor's conference in Chicago, and if you've been watching the news, this epic blizzard blew through while I was there. It dumped over two feet of snow in, in less than two days, actually. And so it started on Tuesday night, and Tuesday evening I went out to dinner with a couple of friends, and one of them had a car, and so we, uh, we drove a little less than a mile away to a restaurant. And it was starting to snow lightly, and so we ate and, and a few other things. And then uh, we came out a couple hours later. There's already six inches of snow on the ground, and it's blowing like 50 miles an hour. And you can hardly see like 20 feet in front of you. Montana people are like, yeah, big deal. Uh, <laughs> Pacific Northwest guy, wow, this is awesome. So luckily a Midwest friend was driving this car and we were seriously just going like stoplight to stoplight, street sign to street sign just to find our way back to the Hyatt Regency, right? So the Hyatt is where we were staying. It, the conference, everything was in this one gigantic hotel. And it, you know, we were one of the last few to make it in. That night, nobody left, nobody could get home, and nobody was coming. It, the whole hotel was full because of all these canceled flights and stuff. And I mean, it was horrible. There was no turndown service. They didn't refresh the little coffees in your room. <laughs> It was, just, it was like lost. It was like, there was this black smoke monster. No. But it felt like we were just cut off from everything else. Like, you know, it was just our little island of a hotel and uh, over a thousand people and two restaurants and we're just constantly looking at each other and you just felt isolating. That is until we looked on the news and they had this incredible aerial shot from about 30,000 feet up and it just showed hundreds of square miles of nothing but white. And when you saw that picture, not only was it just incredibly beautiful and awe-inspiring, it reminded us that our little island of white was connected to this incredibly large thing that we weren't all by ourselves. The reason I bring this up at all is because as a church we are about to embark on this exploration of one of the, one of the most well-known, life-changing, and oftentimes controversial scriptures that Jesus ever gave. And it's known oftentimes as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 six and seven and we are going to be digging deep into this incredible uh, scripture over the next several weeks I should say next few months um, but it's easy at times when you start to dig into a scripture like that to think of it as this disconnected piece of timeless teaching uh, sometimes it's seen as a diamond in the rough compared to all the rest of scripture which I think is a gross misreading of it the purpose of this message this evening, then, is to take a look at the Sermon on the Mount from 30,000 feet, to see how it connects with the rest of Scripture. And when we see the Sermon on the Mount as part of a larger whole, we're going to have better perspective and hopefully be able to embrace all that Jesus wanted to communicate through it, okay? So, let's review some of that larger picture. In the first century, when Jesus is giving this uh, message, Israel was under Roman occupation. Israel is longing for God to intervene. And during this time, there may be two predominant stories or narratives that Israel is repeating to themselves over and over again. The first one is going to be their national story, the Exodus story, right? Where God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. 
This is oh, the story of stories for the nation of Israel. And they're longing for this type of exodus, a new exodus to take place. The second thing that they may be really clinging tightly to, and the reason I say that is because Jesus just quotes it over and over again, is the writings of the prophet Isaiah. And in that prophet Isaiah, God is promised that God himself would come and deliver Israel, that he would bring a new exodus to the people. When leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, especially in Matthew chapter 4, we see that, that Jesus has been presented, or Matthew's presented Jesus as this one who is proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God, of God's rule over the entire world. And Jesus is doing these things. He's not only teaching about the kingdom, but he is doing a couple of things. He's calling people to follow him. He's calling disciples. He's forming a new community of God. And he's performing these exorcisms and healings. He's doing the works of God, and he's doing the works of the kingdom of God. So it would seem that all the hopes and dreams of Moses and the prophets and the hopes and dreams of the world are being summed up in the person of Jesus the Christ. I imagine the scene is just electric with anticipation. He's got disciples following him. Crowds are coming around him. So what, what would Jesus do next? What would he say now that he's announced the kingdom of God is here? and perform signs of the kingdom of God. Well, what he does is, he goes up on a mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine, therefore, that people may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all has been accomplished. Whoever then annuls the least one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Truly, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you've probably heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, raka, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you're at the altar and you're presenting your offering there, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering right there before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother or to your sister. Then come and present your offering. And make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way, so he won't hand you over to the officer and the officer to the judge, and then you be thrown into prison. Because I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said... Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath on your own head, for you cannot really make one hair white or black. But let your statement just be yes, yes, or no. No. Anything beyond these is of evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give him your coat also. If anyone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two. Give to him who asks of you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have, really? Even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I want you to beware of practicing your righteousness before people to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners so that they may be seen by people. Don't be like them. When you pray, 
Go into your inner room and close the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Pray then in this way. Let's join me. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, whenever you fast, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, because they neglect their appearance so they'll be noticed by people when they're fasting. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so your fasting won't be noticed by people, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And this is a tough one. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear and good, your body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your body will be full of darkness. And if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The point is that no one can serve two masters. For either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, wealth. And it's for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat, or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into big barns, and let your heavenly Father feed them. Nathaniel has this great storehouse. <clears throat> and are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, could add a single hour to his or her life? And why are you worried about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field. They do not toil, nor spin. And yet I tell you that not even King Solomon in all his glory was ever clothed as one of these. So, let me get this straight. If God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not be worried then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all those things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry for, about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, don't judge, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. How can you look at the speck that's in your brother or sister's eye and 
you got a log sticking out of your own eye. Or how, how can you say to your brother or sister, here, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then maybe you'll see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. You want to know how to get this life, right? That Jesus didn't say that, I'm saying that. Okay, not Jesus again. I just, it's hard not to preach, but he's preaching. Uh, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For he who asks, receives. And to the one who seeks, finds. And he who knocks, the door will be opened. Or what parent is there among you when their child asks for a loaf would give them a stone? Or if they ask for a fish, you won't give them a snake, will you? So if, if you and me being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask? In everything, therefore, treat people in the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. I want you to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from th uh, thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So then, every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you'll know them by their fruits. You know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. You know, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we, did we not prophesy in your name and, and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miraculous signs? And I'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So then, the one who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. But the one who hears these words of mine and does not act on them is like, like a foolish person who builds their house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught them as one as having authority, and not as merely as their scribes. Father, thank you for this word. Jesus, thank you for this incredible, incredible sermon. Thank you that your word does not come back void. That merely that these words of yours washing over us will have an effect, that they will take root in us. 
Lord, would you transform us with this message and this good news? And by your grace, would you help us not to turn this message of good news into some legalistic list of things to try and do? We need your help for that. So what are your impressions of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? What I want to do uh, is actually, if you have your bulletin, there's a little place for notes in there. Why don't you jot down the first maybe two or three just feelings, thoughts, impressions as you got to just hear Jesus' whole Sermon on the Mount washed over you. What, what are some impressions that you might have had? Just take a moment to write those down. And if anyone wants to share any of those, just... I know, what are some things that come to mind for you? Just yell them out. Guiding. Guiding. Nice. Intimidating. Practical. Revealing. Okay, radically simple. Yeah, radically simple. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's complete. Okay, some common sense in there and some very different than the norm. Okay. I think the question that... You know, as we're going to be engaging in this text over the next several weeks and, and looking at this incredible thing, is what do we do with this? Have you ever thought of that? Like, what do you do with a text like this? There are all kinds of, of very well-meaning approaches to this in the church. Um, you know, some have seen the, time, the Sermon on the Mount as a timeless set of ethical principles that should be just set alongside other great teachings of history, other great teachings from all other faiths. You know, it's just right up there. It's one of the best. It's one of the best nuggets, but it's, it's a, a teaching. Some uh, view the Sermon on the Mount as an example of a future ethic, like the way that life will be someday, but good, you know, there's no way now. It's just when, when Jesus returns, that's how life will be. Um, some from maybe a real strict Lutheran tradition would say uh, the Sermon on the Mount is there to really make us feel bad in, in a good way. Uh, it's so impossible you can't do it, so you need, you need Jesus' grace. Okay? Some heavily influenced by Greek thought uh, may see the Sermon on the Mount as a set of ideals to, to live toward, to strive toward. Okay? Now, it's my opinion that's the caveat, that those approaches are, are flawed because they fail, in my opinion, <laughs> to take into consideration that 30,000-foot view of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the, the two most dominant stories in the minds of first-century Jewish people were the Exodus, right, and Isaiah's vision of God's coming kingdom. And if that was so, what would be the dominant 
image you might have of Jesus, who's just performed all these kingdom-like things, leading people and doing miracles and providing things for people, going up on a mountain and presenting a set of rules or, or, or teaching. What would you think of? What did Nathaniel read? Yeah, Moses, right? Going up to, to receive the Ten Commandments. Now, here's the sticky point with that. I don't know about you, but in my background, and I think it's kind of common American thinking, like think of the Ten Commandments in the courthouse issue and all that stuff. In my background, at least, the Ten Commandments were always seen as kind of this list of rules that if we could all just do these things, the world would be a better place. And actually, that's probably true. If we could all do those things, the world would be a better place. But the Ten Commandments are not primarily rules that we have to follow in order to be acceptable to God. The Ten Commandments are actually gifts from God. They're gifts of grace. Notice how the Ten Commandments begin. I don't know if you caught it when Nathaniel read it, but listen. Then God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, before God even gives the Ten Commandments, He prefaces it all with, Remember, I'm the God who just showed up, who just delivered you when you weren't even looking for me, who just delivered you when you hadn't done anything ethically right. Right? I just am a God of grace who delivered you. Now let me give you some instruction on how to live. The Ten Commandments are actually gifts of deliverance. Have you ever thought of them that way? The Ten Commandments are gifts of deliverance for the most vulnerable in society. I think the one that's helped me see this the most is uh, an author named Glenn Stassen. He points out that the command for Sabbath rest, for example, each week, is to deliver people from their vulnerability to being overworked. Okay? Because in a striated society like that, most people were poor. or were under someone else's ownership. And they could just be completely overworked. So God's commandment to rest is a gift to the marginalized and the vulnerable. Elderly parents who were vulnerable against neglect, they need to be honored. You can't just forget them so that you can go make your own way in the world. Okay, so this is a, this is a good news of deliverance for families. People who are vulnerable to being murdered without justice need protection. In a culture where the family unit was not only your economy, but also your social security, all wrapped into one, there's a prohibition against adultery, which would shatter a marriage. And you know who suffers in that? The woman who has no way to earn any money on her own in that culture. Okay, so this is a, a song of deliverance for people who had no one to get their back. The prohibition against stealing in the Ten Commandments, that was originally in context, dealing with people who would steal people and sell them away for slaves. We're protecting the vulnerable. And today we might think of human trafficking being the same sort of thing. So what I'm trying to, to show you here is that if Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is akin to a new Moses movement, to a new Ten Commandments type movement, it is a movement of grace. Because the Ten Commandments should be understood through a lens of grace and deliverance, not through a lens of law that you have to do in order to earn God's favor. So, here you have Jesus going up on a mountain just like Moses. But before he ever preaches, he's already preached a sermon. 
Did you know that? Like, there's Sermon on the Mount, but he preached a sermon earlier in Matthew. Do you remember what the subject was? The announcement of the kingdom of God. It's in chapter 4. That's Jesus' first sermon. He comes in proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God is breaking into our world. Pure grace. In chapter 4, we see Jesus drawing people to himself. We see Jesus healing people. We see Jesus accepting people, casting out demons. Has Jesus demanded that those people live any certain kind of way? Or meet a certain ethical guideline before he, before he does that? Not at all. So you see Jesus acting with nothing but grace. He breaks into our world by grace. He begins to heal people by grace alone. He's not, he's not giving them a list of things to do. He's just saying, I'm here. This is what happened when, happens when God's kingdom breaks into our world. It's a good thing. And so, because he initiates all this with, with grace, I think it's safe to say we can see his sermon on the mount as a gift of grace to us. In fact, maybe the reason that we, ha- we struggle with the Sermon on the Mount, it seems intimidating to us, or it seems like you know, a very difficult thing to do, which, which it is, by the way. Um, maybe the difficulty with it is that we call it a sermon at all. You know, sermons kind of have a bad name. Um, I remember um, it, it, when I was working with junior high kids like years and years ago in California, this kid had like run off campus and I had to bring him back and I was like trying to talk to him about, you know, you can't just run away from youth group. He's like, quit giving me a sermon, man. I mean, it's like sermon is this, basically this other word for a didactic monologue where somebody's just chewing you out or something like that. So maybe sermon is not the best way to describe what Jesus is doing on the mount. Maybe a more accurate description would be Jesus' gift of deliverance on the mount. It doesn't have the same ring, but let's go with it for now. The gift of deliverance on the mount. I say gift because Jesus' message on the mount is not a list of things that we have to achieve before the kingdom comes. Do you get that? Jesus already announced that the kingdom was breaking in. He's already doing the signs of the kingdom and healing people and calling disciples to himself. So he's not then giving them a list and saying, by the way, in order to enter, you've got to be perfect in all these areas. He's announcing that the kingdom is here and because the kingdom is here... Here's how we get to live. In fact, maybe the clearest sign that people are actually repenting and trusting in the good news of the kingdom is that they begin to live Sermon on the Mount type lives. It's something that God does in you and I when we begin to turn our life over to Him. Jesus is like Moses in this story, but he's, he's better than Moses. Moses went to the mountain so he could be in God's presence, so he could receive the law from God. But Jesus goes up to the mount as God. He is God's presence. Then he calls people to himself, and he speaks as one having authority. He doesn't get something from God and then, and then secondhand give it to everybody. He is saying this in his own authority. The gift and good news of the gift of deliverance on the mount or the Sermon on the Mount is not so much in the content of the sermon. The gift is in the preacher of the sermon. I'm not talking about me. 
I'm talking about, I'm talking about the preacher on the mount. And this is why I get so fired up when I see people wanting to treat Jesus as just a mere teacher or see his message as just another good set of ethics to be strived for. If we read Jesus' message just as another set of ethics to strive for, first of all, we miss the good news, and second, we're going to be really frustrated. Because as Tommy said, it would be intimidating just to look at that list as, a thing, as things we have to do in our own strength. There's no way. There's no way. The Sermon on the Mount is the good news of life that is available to us now when we repent and trust in the teacher on the mount, right? Jesus' commands on the Sermon on the Mount are actually, I think, promises. I think his commands are promises of how life will be in us the more and more we trust him. You, I know that's a small nuance. I know that's a small nuance, but it's so huge. Did you hear that? I think that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a set of promises, especially the Beatitudes. They're promises so that as we turn our life over to him and trust the preacher of the Mount, his Sermon on the Mount takes up residence in us. That you and I actually become the types of people who can live that way. Not in your own strength, but in Jesus' strength. Does this mean that we're absolutely passive? Not in the least. But what it means is that we are not called to strive in our own strength towards a set of ethics. We are called to trust that because Jesus became flesh and died and defeated death in the resurrection, we now have a new kind of life in the Spirit that forms Sermon on the Mount qualities in us. Amen? That's really good news. That's really good news. That Jesus came as an act of grace, put on flesh as an act of grace, gave himself in death as an act of grace, defeated death in the resurrection, and offers you and I new life. And as we trust in that, Sermon on the Mount qualities begin to exude from us. You will know a tree by its fruit, right? And for those of you who have walked in relationship with Jesus a while, you know you're not the same person you were last year. You're not the same person you were five years ago. If you're trusting in Jesus, what happens in you? Your character changes. Your character changes. Our faith, friends, rests in nothing more and nothing less than a person, not in that person's teaching. Right? That's why Christianity or being a disciple of Jesus is all about Jesus and not about what he said necessarily or not about what, he, you know, what people wrote about him. That's the, you know, that's, that's the story about him. But the good news is that he is alive. And he's the Lord. And he's breaking, his kingdom is breaking into our world. And as we trust and embrace that kingdom, these qualities begin to take up residence in us. And I think that that 30,000 foot view is how we need to, to be approaching these texts in the weeks to come. And I'm going to keep reminding us 
as we go, because I, I struggle with it too. I, I want to try and achieve these things of my own strength, and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, I am so thankful. I'm so thankful for, um, for the new life that you offer us. And you know, Lord, you know our human, um, gosh, we're so full of ourselves. <laughs> Thinking we're just going to take this teaching and rip it out of context and we're just going to run with it and try and have this incredible life. Uh, Lord, help us to, uh, to not fall for the lie that we can somehow do life without you. I'm so thankful for the image in John chapter 15 of you being the vine and we bring the, being the branches and how we need to abide in you and remain in you and you do the work of bearing the fruit in us. Lord, help that image to, to take up root in our hearts. To realize, Lord, that our, uh, you have not given us more things to strive for in our own strength, but you're calling us to surrender. And when we surrender... You produce fruit in us. Oh, man, that is good news. Lord, I know that we are all at different spots this evening uh, in, in relating to you. Holy Spirit, won't you come and, and touch each of us and give us something, a tangible next step, a tangible, Lord, what is it we each need to let go of? How can we trust you more? How can we abide in you more so that this kind of life is born in us? Hmm. Lord, teach us how to live. We've got it all backwards. Teach us how to live. Amen.